Amen. Thank you so much, choir, orchestra, everybody. It's wonderful. Uh, thank you, Thomas, for sharing about stewardship. Uh, as he said, if you, hopefully you have your cards. Uh, we will, during the closing hymn, have an opportunity for you to bring your commitment cards to the altar and place them at the altar uh, as a sign that this is indeed a part of our offering before God. So if you'll be prepared at the end of the service to bring your commitment card to the altar, we'll do that during the closing hymn. Uh, if you're not prepared to do that this morning, you can, of course, bring it in next week or uh, bring it to the office uh, on any Sunday, drop it in the offering plate. But if you have it ready this morning, that's how we'll do that at the close of the service. Our scripture this morning comes to us from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. So if you, have, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Or as always, it's printed on the cover of your bulletin. As you're able, if you would, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. Now, dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Don't want to block your view, really. I know this is beautiful. Uh, As you have heard and as you know, this is one of our Sundays we're focusing on stewardship. We talked about stewardship some last week, and we continue that theme today on Commitment Sunday. And I know that everybody loves to hear the preacher preach about stewardship. I know that. Okay, everybody might be a tad stretch. I know that a lot of people really look forward to hearing sermons on stewardship. Okay, that might be a reach as well. Let me say this. There are at least a couple of you who don't mind, all right, when we talk about stewardship. But it is important for us to talk about. I said this last year, uh, and you'll hear me say it again. I've been a Methodist preacher now over 30 years, and there's one thing I've learned, and that is, Because scripture says we should love one another. A preacher can preach on loving one another and everybody's happy. Because the scripture says we should pray, we can preach on prayer and everybody's happy. However, even though scripture says we could give, when we preach on giving, not everybody's happy. But I do want you happy this morning. So we are going to talk about stewardship And we are going to talk about giving, but hopefully everybody will still be happy. 
Now you might be a little uncomfortable having heard the scripture from Acts chapter 4, especially those last couple of verses where Joseph, whose name was changed to Barnabas, sold some land and brought all the money at the apostles' feet. You may wonder the direction the sermon's going to take. Well, I won't be asking you to sell everything you have and bring all the money, all right? As a matter of fact, we're not going to talk about money much at all. You've seen the title. Uh, We're going to talk about stewardship. But really, I promise you, we won't spend more than just a couple of minutes on money. Will that make you happy if you can get a whole stewardship sermon without more than a couple of minutes on money? Will that make you happy? All right, we want you to be happy. So here we go. Acts chapter 4. We actually, if you were here last week, you know we read from chapter 4 last week. We read this beautiful prayer. And I tried to set it in context. Now, I won't give quite as much background today because most of you heard it a week ago. But just as a reminder of how we get to chapter 4, in chapter 2, you have the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and empowers followers of Jesus to be the church. In Acts chapter 3, there's this great story where John and Simon Peter are headed to pray, and they see a man who cannot walk, and they heal him in the name of Jesus. This draws a crowd, which prompts Peter to preach a sermon. As a result of that sermon, 5,000 people come to believe in Jesus. Pretty good day's work. But the authorities are not pleased. So they arrest Peter and John, throw them in prison, and leave them there to spend the night. The next day, they threaten them. They say, you cannot, must not, will not, again, do anything in the name of this Jesus. And then they release them. And so Peter and John go back to the church, having faced the first persecution of the early church. And they pray this marvelous prayer, a prayer for boldness in light of the signs and wonders that God is doing in the early church. A prayer for boldness in light of signs and wonders. And that's what we looked at last week, this prayer. And we talked about the signs and wonders that God is still doing here today. Well, our passage this morning picks up where that one left off. And you might be a little uncomfortable, as you hear it's about members of the early church, all who had houses or land, selling everything and pooling their resources. You might hear that scripture and say, okay, that's not quite what I had in mind for stewardship. We have seen that tried as a national economic system, and it doesn't always work out so well. Well, remember, they're not trying to establish a national economic system. They're simply a group of believers trying to make things work. This was their response to three things that were true for them. And I want us to look at those three things that were true for them that I believe are also true for us and talk about how we respond today, which is probably going to be different than they responded 2,000 years ago. Three things that were true for the early church. First of all, the early church passionately loved Jesus. There was no question that these people passionately loved Jesus. We're not saying they showed up on Wednesday night to sing, Jesus, love me. We're not saying they bought bumper stickers and bracelets that said they loved Jesus. 
We're saying they really, truly, honestly, radically, passionately loved Christ Jesus. Look at verse 33. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. They gave their testimony. They told people what Christ had done for them. Think about it. These were people, many of whom, had been there as a part of the earthly ministry of Jesus. They had heard him teach and preach. They had watched him perform miracles and heal the sick. They had been there on Good Friday when he died. They had mourned his death on Saturday. But on Sunday morning, they started to hear things, crazy things, impossible things, things about him coming back to life. And then they found out that, yes, indeed, it was true. And they spent 40 days with the resurrected Christ. Then they saw him ascend into heaven. Then they gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem to pray and wait as they had been instructed. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them to be the church. Not only had they been with Jesus, but they had experienced the change that he had brought about in their life. These were sick people who had been made well. Broken people who had been made whole. Hurting people who had been made well. These were people who had been living in darkness, who had been brought into the light. These were sinful people who had been forgiven. They had experienced the change that Jesus worked in their life. When someone makes a positive change in your life, you're grateful, right? It prompts you... Gives you an appreciation for them. Gives you a love for them. Years ago, it's chilly this morning. Reminded me, years ago in another church, I went early on Sunday morning to church. My habit is I come into church early on Sunday morning. Usually I like the quiet, solitary time on Sunday morning. So it was about 6 o'clock on Sunday morning. I pulled into the parking lot on a cold day. My car didn't have time to warm up getting from the house to the church. I went rushing in so I could get inside where I expected it to be nice and warm. But the first thing I noticed was it was just as cold inside as it was outside. That was not good. We had a guy in the church, a friend of mine, who worked on HVAC for a living. That's what he did. I knew I could call him in a crunch, so I called him, and I knew I was going to be waking him up. I said, listen, I know it's early, and I'm sorry, but we have no heat in the church. It's really cold. And, you know, really wanting to go back to bed, he said, how bad is it? I said, if we had a baptismal pool, we'd be ice skating. It's cold. We need you. I need you. Usually, like I said, I like the solitary time of the church on Sunday morning. That day, I wanted a crowd just to huddle up and be warm. It was cold. So he came, and he got our heat running after a while, and it was starting to warm up. It wasn't warm yet. But it was warming up when people finally started to arrive. And not knowing how it had been, they walked in and said, it's chilly in here. I'm like, oh, no, it is not. (laughs) You weren't here when it was chilly in here. This guy has saved the day. So they're all high-fiving him and patting him on the back and hugging his neck because he had brought warmth into a cold room. He had indeed saved the day. So everybody was grateful. Jesus hadn't just saved their day. Jesus had saved their soul. 
Jesus had brought salvation into their lives. They had a passionate love for Christ in the early church. That was true of each and every one of those early believers. But there was more. They also loved one another. They loved one another. Did you hear that very first verse? The whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. They were family. They loved one another. It seems strange to us to hear them say they all sold their resources and, and pulled everything together. But you would do that for your family, wouldn't you? If you had a son or daughter, you had grandchildren that didn't have, and you did have, you'd share, right? That's what we do. That's who we are as family. That's what you do when you love each other. You make sure that nobody is in need. They loved one another. It is a practical challenge for us when you have hundreds of people coming on a Sunday across three services. It's hard to even know everybody, much less feel that kind of love for one another. That's why small groups are so important. John Wesley understood that. He required early Methodists to be in small groups so you could have that sense of family, that sense of belonging. One of the marks of the early Methodist people would say, look how they love one another. Find a place if you've not already. Some of you have experienced that in a Sunday school class or a Bible study or a supper group. A place, a group of people that you gather with regularly and you love one another. It's part of our strength. It's part of what makes us a loving congregation. So if you've not found a way to experience that, find a place to plug in. In the early church, they were of one heart and soul. They truly loved one another. Last week, I mentioned John Ogilvie, former chaplain of the United States Senate, uh, with some stuff he had said about our passage last week. Part of what he said about this passage is, Luke tells us about an essential ingredient of a great church, an unlimited commitment to Christ and to each other. They loved Jesus. They loved each other. But there was a third thing that they had, a third truth for the early church. They were committed to the mission of the church. They didn't simply love each other. They loved the people that still needed to hear the gospel. You think about what Jesus had said to them. Go and make disciples. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Go forth and bring in more. Love those people who have not yet heard the gospel. They were committed to the mission of the church. It's wonderful to see when a church is committed to reaching those beyond the walls. Thomas mentioned, and I appreciate him mentioning, fall festival. A lot of churches will do fall festivals and do things for the children that they already have. I appreciate the work that Carson puts into making that a day, not only for our children, but for people all around our community, for families who might not yet have heard the gospel story. It was a great day. If you were here, you saw that. You know that. People came out of the woodwork just to be a part of it. I was giving out water, and somebody said, how much is this? I said, it's free. Everything is free. Just like the grace of God. It's a free gift. 
to you. It was an opportunity for us as a church family to show love to the people in our community, to be committed to the mission of the church. The early church, three things were true. And as a response to those three things, they pulled their resources. That was how they responded. They loved Jesus. They loved each other. They were committed to the mission of the church. Now, loving Christ, if we could, we're going to sum that up in a word, how we both corporately and personally express our love to God in Christ Jesus, the word for that might be worship. Might be worship. They loved each other. If we tried to come up with a word for loving each other, we might say, I don't know, maybe nurture. They loved the people who had not yet heard the gospel story. If we were trying to come up with a word for that, I wonder what that might be. Anybody have an idea? I got all day. Anybody have an idea? Somebody said outreach. Thank you. Uh, Nurture, outreach, and worship. 2,000 years ago, they were connecting with God's kingdom now. Even way back then, they were connecting with God's kingdom now through nurture, outreach, and worship. That's the theme for our stewardship campaign, the mission of our congregation, connecting with God's kingdom now. Now, you may wonder, what does that have to do with stewardship? Well, what you notice is when they were committed to loving Christ, loving each other, and being about the mission of the church, stewardship took care of itself. There's a practical reason we ask you to fill out commitment cards for the finance committee. They don't care about who individually gives what. They are concerned with the total commitment of the congregation towards the working budget of the church. Just like you plan your household budget, right? You don't just decide how much do I want to spend without thinking about how much is coming in, right? At least I hope you don't. Uh, Most of us look at how much is coming in, and then we plan what we can spend. That's how the church finance committee works. So your commitment cards help make that possible. That's the practical reason we do the commitment cards. But there's also a more personal reason. For us to put in, put in writing, put on paper, our commitment for the work of God's church. I said we wouldn't take more than a couple of minutes to talk about money. Here it is. The Bible does say we should give. It does cost money to be, a, to be the church, to create this environment where God is doing signs and wonders. It does require income. You know that. When the Bible talks about giving, it doesn't talk about big random amounts. It's not about saying, I'm going to give $10 a week. Don't think in terms of $10 a week. Don't think in terms of $100 a week. Don't think in terms of $1,000. I'll tell you what, I'll make an exception if you're willing to think about giving $1,000 a week. All right, you can do that. But when the Bible talks about money, it deals in percentages. The biblical standard is a tithe, 10%. Many of you do that. You look at the income coming in, and you say the first tenth goes back to God because that's what I've been taught, because that's what Scripture says, and we appreciate that. Others of you look at that and say, I I couldn't do that. 
course, couldn't is what happens when we try to do it on our own, not when we trust what God can do, right? Couldn't is not in God's vocabulary. Think about how you are blessed. During this season, think about how thankful you are. Think about the percentage God wants you to give back to this place for ministries of nurture, outreach, and worship. The early church, they didn't do this because they were compelled to. Don't plan to give out of guilt. Don't plan to give because you are feeling forced to. Plan to give because you love Jesus. Plan to give because you love one another. Plan to give because you are committed to the mission of this congregation. Give because you want to see God do signs and wonders in and through this congregation. Give because you want to be connected with God's kingdom now. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you for the blessings that we have received. Lord, as we prepare to bring our commitments forward, speak to us what you would have us to do. Let us be obedient. Let us be faithful as we seek to be your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.